0: Hello, I'm Nick Baker and this is the UK Wildlife Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast with me, Victoria Hillman.
0: And me, Neil Phillips.
1: And for this episode, we have a very special guest in Derek Gow, where we've been lucky enough to have a chat to him about all things beavers and beaver reintroductions. What
0: have you been seeing, Vic?
1: To be honest, not a lot, if I'm honest. The goldfinches are still fe- feeding off the napweed in the garden. They're still, I think, so far I've had about five in one go. We've got the sparrows coming down. They're bathing in the, in the bird baths quite happily. We managed to actually get seven sparrows in the bird bath. Not entirely sure how that many got in there but it was quite interesting to watch a few large white butterflies around the garden and lots and lots of spiders actually loads of spiders running around the garden at the moment which is fantastic Uh, but other than that that's kind of it really but how about you neil
0: yeah i've had a bit of a spidery couple weeks the garden spiders are starting to appear i haven't seen a wasp spider this year which is and i have seen one so i haven't managed to track one down since we did that but more on that in a minute i have had two trips to fursley common a bit depressing with all the burnt areas but there's quite a lot of it that is untouched So it's quite nice. And I was hunting these hornet robber flies. I've had a little bit of luck a couple of years ago with them. I went down there with Erica McAllister a couple of weeks ago, who will hopefully be a guest on the show very soon. She'd never seen one. And I managed to find her one. So she was very happy about that. Uh, But hopefully more about that when she's on the show. And I walked around for another four hours after she, she had to go home. For another four hours trying to find one. I found a few little bits and pieces. Saw some juvenile red starts and stone chats and you know, nice, but birds at the end of the day. (laughs) And just about giving up, sun starting to go down, nice light coming in. Oh I'll start wandering back. I'll take the scenic route and bam, there was one right on the edge of the path. But it was bright sunshine, really warm so it's quite active, but it was hanging around this area and it landed on the path and I covered my arm and hand in holes from gorse that was growing down there. And the sun went behind a cloud and it just sat there and I managed to get some stacked images of it um, one of which I've entered into a competition now so fingers crossed on that one and I tried again last weekend I found two more but they didn't want to pose I walked a total went out. 40 kilometres <laughs> <laughs> across the two days trying to find them yeah i had that's why i had achy shoulders as i told you Vic, which which is a yeah. worrying subject for us yeah and my legs ate horrendously the first time but not so bad the second time so hopefully i'm getting fitter again back to match fit as it were when i went last weekend the highlight has got to be the tanner beetle which is our largest species of longhorn beetle which is another subject we're going to cover at some point and it's getting off a stag beetle size quite impressive beast I mean, you can see a couple of pictures on my twitter feed yeah so quite a nice couple of trips it's always nice to go personally even when it's been a bit burnt I had some interesting dog encounters but i had one very nice one that actually waited at the end of the boardwalk for me to take a photo of a lizard which was quite a nice surprise and the only thing i've been doing is my local hornet's nest i've been up to a couple of times and i keep it i got up there at six thirty in the morning but the sun didn't hit the nest till 10 in the morning <laughs> And then when I went the other evening, the sun coming down is just literally the tree line. The sun is skimming the bottom of the tree line and it's lighting up everything all around this tree where the hornet's nest is, but not the tree. And again, I had to wait from I think about three in the afternoon till 6.30 for the sun to hit it. So just bad timing. When I went earlier in the year, they they were coming out a different nest hole and in the evening it was totally shaded all the time. So I just had not had much luck there, but I have got... A couple of nice shots, I think. So you can see one of them on my Twitter feed too. But yeah, I mean, that's all I've done. It's only three days out. I've made the most of them, I think.
1: I, I did I did actually have a day out with a really good friend of mine, Rob, who... We're also going to try and get on at some point. And we went grasshopper and cricket hunting. Really hoping to find the great green bush cricket. We had absolutely no luck. The weather wasn't really on our our side, to be honest with you. Did find loads of rufous grasshoppers, which is fantastic. It means they're doing really well at that site. Quite a few brissels and dark bush crickets as well. And wasp spiders. Did find a couple of wasp spiders. Also found the egg sac. And I did share that actually on our channels. Just is so well hidden in amongst all the branches. But first egg sac of the year which was amazing.
0: And that leads us very nicely on to, we didn't plan that at all. Well. We should have, I should have been oh, quiet it? about that. It sounds like yeah, we did. Um, no, no, no. know. Leads us, leads us on very, um, totally professionally, leads us on to the Wasp Spider episode, which has gone down very well. It shot up with the downloads. I think we are at 500 downloads in two or three days, which is really quite nice. So thanks everybody. A few of you have been out, inspired, some of you have said, by the episode. Graham Wallace, friend of the show. Check out his Naturally Curious UK YouTube channel, and facebook page he's been filming the wasp spiders local to him he found one and he went back and found some more and apparently he's driving his wife mad with wasp spiders <laughs> which uh, sounds familiar to to me actually <laughs> and uh yes rob reed who i read his username on instagram as Robred photos but it's rob reed photos so check him out he's got some spider images and he's looking for egg cocoons it was just like i've never seen either
1: so i don't I, have Well, i showed me. him his first one on monday because we went out and we had a good look and yeah, we found one. Oh, is that the rob
0: that you just? That uh, is the rob that I went oh, out with. Oh, yeah. I can't join dots today, can I? It's too hot. It's something it's <laughs> very hot and humid where we're recording. Uh, literally this evening, it was fine till I went to pick my daughter up from school. I've got to deal with that now. Daughter at school now. Oh. So anyway, you don't want to know how about all that. On to the news. Do you want to start, Vic?
1: Yeah. So we're actually going with good news for this episode, and it's kind of good news that's come out of a bad situation and this has come from bird guide that three european golden plover and one eurasian curlew have been released back into the wild after being found uh, as eggs in a property in west yorkshire Yeah, you, know, you can pop on to read the full story of this we will share it through our channels anyway but basically a whole load of eggs were found in an incubator during i think a raid or an operation in west yorkshire um they've raised these these chicks these golden plover and curlew and they have now been released back into the wild so i think everyone's just keeping their fingers crossed that they do really well so a, kind of a, a good news that's come out of a bad situation
0: i'm gonna go with the good news about spoonbills not a million miles away from me in suffolk a place called havergate island which is famous for its hairs but they've had spoonbills there for Oh, quite a few years now I think we I, I shared a story on the feed and it'll certainly be shared if we haven't already so they tried to nest last year they'd built platforms for them a few of them built nests but none of them succeeded but this year none of them has managed to breed successfully so we've had the first chicks in 300 years in Suffolk it's rather nice so hopefully there'll be a few more of those stories before the end of autumn but now we're going to move on to the main event as it were we pre-recorded the interview with Derek and well here it is now Our guest today is Derek Gow, a man whose name is instantly related to beaver introduction in the UK. So thanks for coming, Derek.
2: That's no problem. Thank you for having me.
0: And I think we'll start with the questions today. So I think you've got a question, first of all, Vic, haven't you?
1: I've had a question in from Graham Wallace through our Facebook page, basically asking how long do beavers live typically in the wild? What's the average litter size and at what age do they normally have their first young?
2: Right, like, so beavers in the wild are going to make maybe 15 to 17 years normally, but that's an old beaver. If you're in you know, a more forbiddable climate, perhaps where you savage winters, your life might not be that long. In Britain at the moment, as we understand it, we think that some of the individuals that are living wild are living longer because they're in a warm, lush island where there never is any snow and there are plenty of sugar-rich vascular plants you know, more or less right the way through the season. Beavers have between, um, you know, one to four kits in a litter. Um, sometimes they can have exceptionally large litters, like 11, but that is a truly exceptional thing. And I'm not sure whether that's a, a record for North America. I'm not sure that has anything to do with Eurasian beavers at all. But one to four kits is the normal number. And then those kits will live with their families. So if you can imagine a beaver family snuggled, in, in in the the chamber of their the cosy lodge tonight with the the shredded um, um, sticks that have been split by the adults as a bed, then those then snuggled in that lodge all curled in together. There'll be big adult animals which weigh about twenty five kilos um, or more. There'll be one year olds from last year. There might be an, another odd adult, which is an uncle or an aunt, and there'll be some tiny babies from this year. So the, ba- the baby, the baby, the, when the one-year-olds get to two, so in the spring of next year, they will start to move out to the surrounding landscape. They'll attempt to find mates, and then those animals at the, approximately the age of three will breed. Many of the ones that breed when they're three will lose kits or litters. So it's about four by the time you get to this age where they're having um, you know, large, stable um litters. yeah we've got a
0: few more questions kira 288 asks how do you make sure reintroduced beavers don't become inbred and isolated and hayden jb has asked um why did beavers go extinct in the uk and how long ago
2: okay so well the first part of that how do you make sure they don't get inbred as we understand it and of course nobody knows where all the beavers that are living wild in britain have come from nobody has the faintest idea but there's been a, a genetic assessment of the population undertaken in Scotland. And uh, together that, together with the knowledge we have about what beavers were officially released, and it tells us that over in Napdale and Kintyre, there's a population which is at least partly descended from Norwegian animals, and, and, that, and that indeed some of the original animals that were imported from Norway for the Napdale trial are still alive. So, by the time we finished killing beavers in Western Europe, there were populations of Eurasian beavers in Scandinavia, on the Elbe in Germany, and on the Rhone in France. So, some of that Norwegian genome is present in Britain in Napdale. The bulk of the rest of the animals are, are from Bavaria. And in Bavaria, when they decided to reintroduce um, beavers, what they did was, because the gene pool in Western Europe was so small, was they got animals from Eastern Europe, from the Russians, they got animals from Sweden, they got animals from France, and they mixed them all up, and that was the base stock they used for their reintroduction. So it's actually genetically about as vigorous a stock of beavers as you can procure, and the bulk of the beavers in Britain are from that Bavarian stock. So actually, by accident, we actually have a a highly variable genetic stock of beavers, with with perhaps the last interesting feature being that in the early days of beaver imports, we brought some in from Poland. Both in Scotland on part of the River Tay and in Kent, this Polish population is still physically evident in that every so often black animals are born. And the black animals comprise about a third of the Eastern European population of beavers. And As I say, you see these quite distinctly on occasion in Kent and on the Tay in Scotland. With regard to, to when beavers became... Ex- why did they become extinct in Britain? Okay, well, they didn't become extinct in Britain because they were any great problem for us. They became extinct in Britain because the Ro- stupid Roman Catholic Church um, said they were a fish because they had a scaly tail, uh, and therefore you could eat them during the fast of Lent when you couldn't eat them, of land animals. Their fur, their soft, lustrous fur was incredibly valuable for, for robes and for babies' blankets, and, and in the end, from the 1600s on, for for formal hats, though by that time beavers in Western Europe were simply not present in any longer in adequate numbers really to supply the hat trade, which is why the fur trade was such an important part of North America and Canada and the expansion and opening up of the West. Um, and then the final reason why we, hunt, we overhunted beavers to extinction was that they have scent glands in the cloaca at the base of their tail. And these scent glands contain a very high concentration of salicylic acid, which comes from the bark of the willow trees that the beavers eat. And the salicylic acid is a basic ingredient of aspirin. So, because it's, it, it, and it will actually relieve for a time um, you know, the pain of things like rheumatism, um, gout, toothache, arthritis. And therefore, what that, then, that meant was that in the Middle Ages, a single gland was worth a year's wage to a labourer, the second gland was worth another year's wage, and then the rest of the beaver's body was worth a third year's wage, and that's why beavers were hunted to extinction. We believe that they became extinct. There are oral records of beavers in Scotland, in and around Lochaber, that were still being talked about in the 1800s. There was a place called Nant Frankum in Wales, which is the Valley of the Beavers, and again there were oral records of their of animals until relatively late on in time. But the last actual record of a beaver being killed in England is at a place called Bolton Percy, which is near to Harrogate. And there's a record in a church register there of a guy called John Swale being paid in 1789 for the head of a beaver. And on the page following it, written in the, the same handwriting of the parish clerk that paid John Swale, and there's a record of a, a payment being made for the head of an otter. Otters were worth a shilling Beavers were worth tuppence, and what this shows you is that this Clark, you know, they were different animals because the price was different, and if the Clark recorded them as different animals, it almost certainly wasn't the first beaver he'd ever seen. So we think they survived until probably the early 1800s for whatever reason in North Yorkshire, but then after that, you know, habitat loss over hunting just gradually finished them off, and, you know, so they'd been extinct in Britain probably for somewhere in the region of about 200 years.
1: So really interesting. Yeah. Really, really interesting. Well, thank you very mm. much for that. And we have one last question from Andy Roy, again, through our Facebook. He said, if possible, could you ask about the effects of lack of predation on beaver numbers? If reintroduced to specific rivers, would we see a population excess leading to hostility from landowners? Or does he envisage them naturally spreading themselves thinly across a watershed without a human hand? And secondly... I know the benefits of beavers on flooding, but as I understand it, it's an upstream process. We as nature lovers are eager to see them reintroduced, but does Derek have any thoughts on the compensation enticement for farmers to have beavers on their land. Downstream riverside landowners will benefit from the beavers, but how do we convince those upstream to sacrifice some of their land to beaver lakes?
2: Right. Okay. That's a very complicated question. Where should we begin? Well, I'll tell you what, we'll begin with a bit I can remember, which is predators. Right. So in the beginning, the most effective predators there were of beavers were big cats. And if you speak to the North Americans who still live in a landscape where there are beavers and pumas, they will tell you that pumas will think nothing of going into a metre and a half of water, catching a beaver, putting their, their incisors through its skull and curling their body around this gigantic rodent like a cat curls its body around a mouse and crushing its skull. So, if you're a beaver and you try, you're forced out of the big river systems where you're safe, living in your bankside burrow with your family, and you're forced out into to the headwaters of shallow streams. Then you have to build dams bloody fast, because if you don't, and those big cats are there, they will get you. And the guys there have done a number of radio collared um, or radio tracking studies. On beavers, you know, to look at what what impact predators like the puma have on translocated populations, and what those studies show is that when the the big cats lock in on them and start to kill families that have been moved, the other family members disperse very quickly and try to flee up and downstream to find um, living space where the cats are not, and so they really know, perfectly aware of how significant this predator is. Some parts of both North America and Europe, wolves, which are of course incredibly clever, eventually figure out that because beavers use regular pads uh, uh, feeding paths at night that if you sit at the side of the feeding paths and just wait then eventually a beaver will come bumbling along and when it walks past you off into the little cops of trees in the distance to feed all you need to do is follow up and play with it like a mouse until it's dead and you've got it lynx will also take them brown bear will take them But in in Britain, you know, there are still some predators which will predate baby beavers. So there's video footage of foxes taking them. It's very likely that the large common otters predate baby beavers. Perhaps mink, you know, will occasionally predate baby beavers. Martins, maybe two, and perhaps even badgers. The picture is not clear. But what we do know is that because beavers live as territorial family units along the edges of rivers or along the edges of watercourses, which are incredibly intolerant of other beaver family members moving through the the held territories is that the vast amount of, of mortality that occurs in beaver populations occurs either when the kits transfer from a diet of their mother's milk to, to vegetation and they haven't developed an adequate gut microflora to digest vegetation, so they die very young. Or it occurs when, when you know, in interterritorial fights between different beaver groups, or um, it occurs in two year olds when they try to find space in this living environment where there already are many other beavers and of course they're attacked by the beavers that, that hold the territories elsewhere and very savagely wounded. So beavers can be incredibly aggressive towards other beavers and what you actually find is not that number you put the species in and the numbers rise exponentially until they're literally a locust-like plague crawling across the earth. What you find is that the numbers are limited both by the presence of other beavers in the environment and by the habitat quality of that environment. So if you've got you know, poor habitat Habitat quality um, and very many beavers surrounding you, then some pairs just don't breed at all or they fail to establish territories. Um, The numbers of animals that are wounded in intercolonial fights rises, and that's what really limits beaver numbers. When you look at um, the impact on people, well, of course, this is an animal in the end that's going to take land. But, I mean, I farm here in the West Country, and I'll tell you one thing, is that there's an awful lot of farmland that is kept in a situation that's termed productive, which it's not, simply because of the subsidies that people are paid to do so. So if you are farming, And you have an inspection by the Rural Payments Authority and they go through your farm and they find in the wetlands at the valley bottom where you are claiming single farm payment, you've allowed willow to come back through from the river's edge because nothing much will graze in. It's too wet. There's fluke in there. But you've allowed these trees to come through and you haven't mown them off. Then they will take, they will will penalise, they will take money from you for allowing wildlife habitat to form. It's called a permanently ineligible feature, which is a pith. And there are also temporary ineligible features which are called. Tiffs, And both these things, if they're identified by the RPA, are uses of land which the landowners will be penalised for allowing to happen. So we've got to move right away from this. And the reality of it is, you know, on our farm here, we have areas of land in the valley bottoms which grow nothing. Maybe they were fields in the Middle Ages, but they've been way too wet ever since for any crops to have grown. So in these environments, there is no issue with the beavers. We were down today, you know, doing a beaver watch in the evening and doing a training course earlier on, walking through river valleys, completely surrounded by trees, no farming, no nothing, deep in size, Nothing those beavers are ever going to do is going to impact on the farmland around them. But of course, not all of Britain's farmland is like that. I mean, I think your questioner was asking what happens in the uplands where the beavers are up there building dams and the beneficial impacts are, are arise in the lowlands. Well, I'm not be rude, but it's not as simple as that. If the beavers go up, then it depends where they go up. I mean, if they go up in the Lake District, there are no trees in the hills. So they're not going to go and live in hills and mountains which are completely treeless because they've been subject to atrocious levels of overgrazing since the Bronze Age. Um, they're going to live in the areas where there are trees. And, and of course, unless we're going to restore the trees, then many parts of Britain are fairly barren, or some parts of Britain are very ba- fairly barren environments for beavers. Well, of course, if you're going to say, right, OK, look, I tell you, we want this animal building dam complexes in the wider landscape. Those dams have got to stay. They do slow the flow. They hold 10 times more water um, than, than watercourses, which are not in by beavers. And I was out in one site yesterday where it's about 150 metres long, and all the dams in that little catchment hold a thousand cubic water. And that's a thousand cubic water that's not coming whanging down to hit the village at the bottom. And the obvious answer to this is that if you want to turn around to people that own land and say, I'll tell you what, we don't, you know, these sheep you keep in here, well, they're worthless. There's no point in keeping them. There's no market for them and you can't do it economically um, unless you're subsidised to do so. And they're worth nothing to us. But actually, you know, slowing that flow of water is really important because we don't want our schools um, flooded and our houses full of sewage. So what we'd really like you to do is create these beaver wetlands up there, not kill them, tolerate them, and then we'll pay for that instead. And that really is what it's going to come down to: is that you can establish an effective dialogue about, um, you know, people being rewarded for beavers holding water on the land, and in the end, you incentivise the retention of the animals, and that's how perhaps it might work. And of course, it's how it might, they might very well fit into the recreation of new ecological corridors, because in the wetlands that beavers create, you know, many independent studies have shown quite clearly that they're absolutely brimful of life, and you have an eighty percent greater density of both biomass. Mass and biodiversity and they're an entirely de- um, desirable feature in a countryside that's increasingly depleted of life and, and all too commonly you know there they, they, is no other solution to to restore so that's basically how the whole system works
1: fantastic thank you
2: <laughs> to Martin, um,
1: We just have one last question that came in last minute from Alan. And him, Me said, I know very little about it, but where's the sense in introducing beavers, then culling them? There must be plenty of places in the UK they could relocate where their presence would help the countryside.
2: Well, that's actually, he he may say he knows very little about it, but it's a (laughs) pretty obvious response. You know, as best we know, in Britain, there may be somewhere in the region of, I don't know, maybe a thousand plus free living beavers. I mean, this issue, I guess, is pertinent to River Tay in Scotland, where the Scottish government have decided that, that there is no effective way of dealing with problem beavers in the croplands other than to shoot them. Now, that's a political decision that was made to please a pretty hard line. Agricultural lobby, but a pretty hardline agricultural lobby. Who, in fairness, are farming arable land in a flat plain with old flood walls right inside the water. And if you want to have a a, a fight with people about what beavers do, you pick landscapes like that because, of course, these flood walls, some of which may be medieval, you know, are made of soil. There there is no concrete or steel or anything to stop a burrowing animal punching up into them, and then the, the flood walls collapsing when the water levels rise. And of if so that then happens and the water goes through into crops and low flat land and in the dates, for example, perhaps a potato crop, then you might lose £30,000 worth of potatoes, you know, simply by, you know, by that event occurring. So you can't say there isn't an issue with beavers there. The issue is, is a response. And, of course, at the moment in Britain, a thousand animals may sound like a lot, but Britain is a vast island, and there are very few beavers here. And, of course, what you should have focused on is catching those beavers that are an issue and translocating them, like the precious individuals that are, into other river catchments elsewhere where they do nothing but good and would pose little in the way of a threat or a conflict with, with agricultural interests. And, I mean, I know bits of Scotland fairly well and if you went down to Galloway or across to the west coast you'd find loads of river systems where there are plenty of trees, there's plenty of habitat, the predominant land use is grazing livestock, and beavers quite simply would live quite happily in those environments, creating their dams and systems of impoundment, you know, bringing much, much greater biodiversity back to the landscape, more duck, more amphibians, more aquatic invertebrates, more fish, without conflicting with people anyway. So it's been a huge mistake, you know, that, 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 that's that been made to suggest that the first thing we do when there is, is an issue and the numbers are so low is to start culling them what we should have done was to catch them and move them to other locations elsewhere, and I think it's a decision the Scottish Natural Heritage and the Scottish Government are going to have to reconsider because it's just one that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever and is completely and utterly socially unacceptable. Yeah,
0: you know, I believe the River Tay coal last year didn't they kill a quarter or a third of the population? Some people have worked out. It's...
2: Nobody knows how many animals. So, I mean, what was argued by Scottish Natural Heritage was that you could cull the animals there because it was a derogation that was available elsewhere within the European Union when the the species was classed as being in satisfactory conservation status. Now, in Bavaria, where they cull beavers, they spent 10 years moving beavers out to, at their expense, out to countries like Romania, Belgium, Croatia, Serbia, to many other river systems where the animal had been stripped from the landscape in the Middle Ages by, frankly, just human greed. So to restore beavers in, in, in those populations in a, an arable landscape where they were causing the kind of conflicts I've just described, the Bavarian government and the Bavarian Nature Conservation Authorities shipped out about 1,000 animals to these other landscapes where the, nation, the, the different um, you know, forest services or nature conservation authorities wanted to have them back. And that saved the lives of of, of those animals they created in their own right, large populations which are expanding now. And it was a visionary way of dealing with this issue. But now, over the course of the last five, six years, they've been in a situation where, of course, there, there, there are very few other places where you can put beavers. There isn't a lot of space left for them in Bavaria. So in that country, which is approximately the size of Scotland, they have started to cull beavers. But they don't allow farmers or people who own land and who don't like them to do the culling. The culling is organised by completely dispassionate individuals for whom it is just a job. And there's no hate motivating it one way or t'other, As soon as you allow people who hate to start killing, then you can end up in some really dark places. And history has shown fairly graphically how badly wrong that can go. So the first mistake that was made was allowing carte blanche to people who just didn't like them to kill them. And the second mistake that was made was saying they're a good nature conservation status, which is blatant nonsense when you consider that in Bavaria the population is 23,000 and in Scotland the population maybe is 700. It was just an excuse that was made to cover up for politicians you know frankly just toadying to farmers and and to fairly fairly aren't farmers at that they're not by any manner of means representative of the farming community many of whom you're looking to a different kind of future are perfectly sympathetic with regard to the restoration of this animal
0: yeah that's an important thing to remember isn't it a lot of these lobby bodies don't actually represent all the people they claim to angling trust being another one the beavers come up when the story of the mountain hares. They're going to be licensed, and Scottish Natural Heritage uh, track record on licensing shooting of things, thanks to the beavers, is not very good. No, yeah. we'll see what happens with no. the mountain hares, but I fear the worst. To be quite honest, like I mean, the mountain hare
2: thing is, uh, yeah, it's just, it's a shameful scenario as well because the guys there, not only are they okay, they're killing them on the basic premise that these spread loping owl for the. Mm you know, which then impact the grouse. But but of course, you're also killing them, knowing perfectly well that if you strip this animal out of those upland environments, you are stripping out the food resource for the raptors. It's a mm. deeply sinister process. And you know, that's it. It just shouldn't happen at all it should be banned and stopped and that's it but it is this ridiculous political game of cup and pee whereby they make an announcement of protecting beavers and then three weeks later they quietly organize a, a training course that, the the content of which is beyond belief whereby you know your own officials from the ex-officials from the red deer um, commission sit down and try to normalize the killing of beavers as the way forward for a very small, um, narrow-minded, select group of people um, who by no manner of means represent wider society. And what it shows you is that you know, you've got this really quite deeply disturbing, you know, hand-in-glove tight relationship between the nature conservation authorities and people who are prepared quite willingly, you know, to, to do things that are, are, you know, just ecologically wrong. And from an animal welfare point of view, they're not even dubious. They're just bad. So it's a ridiculous situation that we're in. And um, it's, a, it's it's just shameful that wider society are never offered the opportunity to discuss any of these things. They're just ignored. All they've got to do is keep on paying our taxes and shut up.
0: Well, unfortunately, it's something that's echoed with the badger cull and the situation with hen harriers and this brood meddling. And But there we go. With a bit of luck, the tide has turned, but we'll see what happens next year. I think when uh, the EU regulation disappears, I mean, do you have any concerns about that? Because a lot of the reason beavers got to stay was EU regulation was being a native species, and uh, <clears throat> I forget what the exact regulation is. But do you think now, that's going to The be an Habitat's
2: director, which encouraged yeah. us to do this, the reason those beavers got to stay mm. was that when you actually turned around and asked people, or people organised themselves mm. to have community meetings at size regarding the future for the first time ever and I've been some of those I mean some of the most moving nature conservation meetings I've ever attended and not the dull ones where you listen to a lot of your very tedious presentations about how to save a ladybird spider or a, a tiny pathetic orchid you know, it was things like, you know, these public meetings that were held at the beginning of the River Otter trial, you know, or when there was an argument with the beavers and the River Otter. And you get kids standing up and saying, look, you know, I've done my research on this. They're living in my granny's garden. They're eating our Lalandii. These animals do marvellous things. They create living space for all these different species. I think it's just wonderful. And it fills me full of such hope. That these have come back and my name is sophie and i'm age nine and you know you look at things like that and you think well we live in a time where huge sums vast sums of public money have been used year in year out to subsidize the creation of the countryside we drive through. And these vast sums of public money have in the end produced something that is more or less an ecological desert. I mean, when you look at large parts of, of, of south-western Britain like Dartmoor or Exmoor or Bodmin, you know, you'll go to conferences where people from the national parks will wax lyrical about the wonderful environment we have and there'll be a picture of a, a wasted heathland with a, with a sea behind it and a sheep and a rainbow. And then you sit down to them and say, well, just exactly what wonderful environment that is. Is Is that is that the, the last of the Swifts finishing now? Is it the last four pairs of ragouzles? Is it the complete absence of water voles? Or is it the, the landscape that, that, that is so tangibly almost there of 100 years ago where you had white-tailed eagles and cats and great bustards and spoonbills and cranes? This environment that's here now, it's near ridiculous. You go up there and you'll see maybe a few wheat ears, an odd stone chat. If you're lucky, there'll be a crow and maybe a dead fox squashed on the road. And that's it. Oh, also, sorry, terribly sorry. There will be 50 million pheasants, <laughs> But other than that... That's it. And it's just mental. It's not, I mean, it, 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 there's not a scintillence of sense in it. And if we want to basically really, you know, start to seriously think, look to recover our landscape for nature by recreating corridors. then we need to take some a, a large chunk of that bullion and start to spend it on other things. We shouldn't be giving it to farmers like me. I'm um, you know, sitting on arses and do nothing to deserve it. I get twenty three thousand a year money every year, thanks very much, taxpayers, for doing nothing, absolutely nothing. I don't need to spend that money in creating ponds or, or, or on rewilding half my farm. I can just sit there, you know, every year and decide that I'll, I'll buy a new Land Rover because I can't be bothered to wash the one I, I bought last year. And it's it's wrong. It's just wrong.
0: So, Derek, you've got a new book out um, called "Bringing Back the Beaver." Yep, which is. Basically the story of, well, a little bit of a biography of yourself, but the story of how the beaver has finally, through to put many obstacles, would be a flat way of putting it, arrived back in the UK where it belongs. So... What are the benefits of beavers to the UK?
2: So, so beavers, basically, they are wetland gardeners. They make wetlands in, along the edges of watercourses, which are incredibly complex. They, they do things like fell trees, they create burrows. But by the, by the principal thing they do in the higher headwaters of river catchments is they put impoundments or dams across minor stream systems and everywhere the water goes round, they put another dam or another obstacle in its place so within a beaver territory you could have a multiple of water bodies where there was never water held before and this evening for example I was out with a group sitting as the sun went down over the um, horizon you know uh, going from warmth to a distinct autumn chill in the air and we're sitting there as kingfishers are perched on, on the branches um, before us, waiting for the beavers to come out at night in environments where there would have been no water, you know, had the beaver dams not been there. So there are big trout jumping, small trout jumping, um, nuthatches in the tree, above, trees above us, marsh frogs croaking. You have dragonflies all manner of gills of life formed around the water of different depths, different temperatures, different patterns, some of it flowing across the land, some of it impounded in, in big dams, some trees still standing, some trees falling. What they create are delightfully random landscapes around which life entirely evolves. So from a biodiversity point of view, at a time when, when, when the picture is bleak and dark and we know that life uh, is fading on this planet and the pulse and the heartbeat is slowing, what these animals do is they take nature and landscapes that are dead and they turn it round. And that's why we need them desperately. We also know, because we are an economically motivated species, that these, the landscapes that beavers create are natural filters. They take out the toxins that we put into the watercourses, the nitrogen, the phosphate, the metaldehydes, and the chemicals, and they hold them in these landscapes, trapped in the silts of the dams like kidneys, filtering out the waste, and locking it at a set point. The landscapes are retentive water um, during droughts and during flood events because they're complex. It will take the water 10 times longer to get through them than it takes to get through an unobstructed channel. And what that means is that these complexes are above villages and towns that flood on a regular basis and where we've always considered these torrents of water hammering down to be normal. Beavers restore the natural function of a riparian environment by slowing, deflecting, creating complexity, creating abrasive landscapes where the water cannot come at speed towards us. They create the complete opposite of farmed environments where we've canalised rivers, canalised streams, pulled up berms to deflect the water off the land so that Sophie the sheep and its two worthless lambs can safely graze while the primary school below is six foot deep in water. And we just know now that if we're going to have any sustainable future, and with regard to to both nature and with regard to flood mitigation, that we're going to have to restore the beavers to help us to do it. Excellent. Thank
1: you. I'm all for like bringing back beavers. Actually, I'd love to see one in the wild. One day I'll get there. But what are kind of the main objections that people have to bringing back beavers that you've Ooh. kind
2: of... Okay, so the main objections are they'll flood land and it will damage agricultural crops. And in some environments that is true, but it's an insignificant part of an impact as far as the overall economic performance of agriculture is concerned. So if you're an arable farmer and you have low-lying land and there are water courses through it and there are flood walls and the beavers punch holes in them, then of course it will have an impact on your crops. It could have an impact on your crops. But if you're an upland farmer and you're nowhere near watercourses and you're producing sheep, then there's nothing a beaver's ever going to do that's going to infect, you know, impact you in any way. So the actual, actual impact in agriculture you know, in continental Europe, even in developed landscapes, is relatively low. The impact in commercial forestry, likewise, is relatively low. The other group of people who jump up and down and make a huge fuss about beavers are game fishermen, who are determined that they are the, the last stake through the heart of the dwindling Atlantic salmon and that the fish will not be able to, to bypass beaver dam complexes and then get up to its spawning grounds in the higher headwaters of rivers. But there is no evidence of this. What you've got are a bunch of tweedy old men and I'm smelling strongly of fish and tobacco and whiskey on occasion too, who are insistent this is the case despite any evidence to prove their contention. And of course, you know, even if you said that that was the case and, and, the, and that there was an impact on Atlantic salmon, it would mean that every other guild of life that revolves around the beaver, the water bowls, the, the bullheads, the little grebes, the redback shrikes, everything that needs these animals to create the habitats that they need to prosper, they all have to go because of one fish. And not only that, but because these guys want to occasionally catch a fish so they can send a photograph home to their mums of them holding it on the bank, that means that the wee villages that flood and the other people who live in these landscapes too are not going to be offered a solution which might sustainably stem the source of their misery because these guys want to catch a fish. It's the most incredibly stupid and selfish position. And then the final guild of opposition really is, you know, the state conservationists—the people who are professional conservationists who, who work for a long time in position for the government, who've decided that the status quo is just about where you want it to be, who have happy jobs that have decent pensions—and who really have very little left in the way of passion or ambition and who certainly have little interest in doing anything fast and those guys have been really really difficult when it comes to, to the restoration of the species in the wider landscape. Okay, that was
0: really interesting. I think Vic's going to ask you about the River beavers in a minute, but there was uh, reading the book, I hadn't realised uh, until I read your book actually, about the cases at the Lost Garden of Heligan, I found quite a bit of a shocking story actually, but could you just give us a brief summary of Attempts to get beavers in that were thwarted at the last minute by certain people.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, the Lost Gardens of Heligan was... or well, the Lost Gardens of Heligan sit above Mevigessie and Cornwall. Mevigessie is a village which suffer, is suffering extreme flood events, which cause immense misery and do immense physical and um, financial damage to the local community on a fairly regular basis. And, and basically what you have to have happen is a, a heavy rain hitting... Um, the denuded lands at the top of the catchment. It's a relatively short catchment. I can't remember exactly how long, but you're know, looking at something that's probably a couple of miles. And if it rains heavily and those rains coincide with a high tide, then maybe I guess, it just fills up with water. And I think in or around the 2010, the the director of the Lost Gardens of Heligan, Peter Stafford, when they were faced in the village with another catastrophic flood event, decided it would be worth having a chat about the idea of beavers, putting beavers into the wooded catchment of the watercourse to see if their dams uh, would hold water and slow the flow. And of course, subsequent studies that were done after the project had more or less failed demonstrated quite graphically that this is exactly what they would do. And though we walked every inch of the catchment and we produced a a, a really sound case to suggest this would be possible, what happened was really quite um, illuminating. So if you're a nature conservationist and you want to reintroduce a species that's not normally native to the British Isles, and of course nobody actually legally knows what that means, it's a made-up term to stop people bringing in cages full of wolves and just letting them go, then what you have to do is you have to produce a, a license application to Natural England who will sit there in august judgment and decide whether this is worthy of their consent or not. Now, to be clear, they won't give you any money and they won't give you any technical advice. But what they'll do is they'll just add a whole lot of bizarre and kooky requirements to your license if they decide that they actually want to give you it. And if they don't, they'll, they'll give you a reason for refusing it. Anyway, the long and short of it was that, that we worked away in this project. We prepared the license application in triplicate for Natural England. And then as the whole thing was coming towards an amicable conclusion, with everybody concluding it would be a good thing to do, because we'd like to keep our homes, you know, kind of dry. What happened was that we were told by the then Secretary of State, Richard Bennion, that actually this wasn't going to happen, that what was going to happen was you could put your licence application into Natural England, and then Natural England would put the licence application onto DEFRA, who would then also mull it over without knowing very much about the subject at all. But, whatever their conclusion was, the ultimate decision would be made by the minister. And he had been influenced by a letter from the Angling Trust, you know, who were claiming all sorts of, you know, the completely ludicrous assertions of regard to beavers, dams and migratory fish, which they parroted for the best part of two decades. And, And on the basis of that, without asking anybody else, he said that the minister was going to have the final say. And of course, it was that point in time, I guess, you really began to understand that this was a game of chess, that was entirely engineered to give the appearance of being a game you might win if you played by the rules. But when you actually started to play the game, you began to understand that whatever move you made and whatever you did, you were never going to win and that the rules would morph and change to ensure you lost. And therefore, this... Eventually, project eventually collapsed because the landowner, then the Lost Garden, who owned the the lease of the Lost Gardens, its leased to the the Lost Gardens of Heligan and Tim Schmidt's organisation at Eden. Um, decided on the basis that his pheasant-shooting chums, you know, had complained about beaver and told him what terrible animals they were, that this was just too socially unacceptable for him and it wasn't going to be. And what's continued to happen in the the 10 years that have passed is that, you know, every few years, when there's a high tide and it rains, the villages are underwater again. And there's, I think, was a disastrous flood not that long ago and they looked again at the solution and what might be done and there was a lot of hand-wringing and and sympathy expressed, but nothing has been done at all. And the only thing that is certain is it will happen again. So what you've got is a classic example of a solution that could quite easily have been applied. And, and the farmers, the brothers who farm the top of the catchment, I have to say, were entirely supportive of, of the whole thing moving forward. But for reasons none of which were good, no progress has been made on it at all.
0: That's disgraceful. Yeah, no. I've, I've, once I read that book, I was straight on to talk to you about it. Wasn't I, I was my victory? I just I couldn't believe yeah. what I was reading. So people's homes are being flooded because of indirectly because the Angling Trust don't want beavers to, uh, and
2: also because the landowner who owns the valley wants to have an ornamental pond. It's it's the classic situation whereby you have a few individuals that make decisions to suit themselves, and they really couldn't. You know, actually, to be blunt, they couldn't give a shit about anybody else
0: sums up a lot of what's going on in this country sometimes I it, just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was talking conservation wise i wasn't going into anything else that, that's something i'm definitely not going into a slightly happier story i think it's got another question
1: yeah just because i'm pretty sure they are the closest ones to me and that would be the beavers on the river otter yeah i mean that's kind of a bit of a happier story
2: yeah it was a happier ones. story in the end so i mean basically what happened at river otter was that Well, for a few years it was known that there was a beaver living there. It was believed to escape from a nearby enclosure and nobody thought anything of it. It was called Eva the beaver. (laughs) It floated up and down the river happily, happy in its own solitude for a number of years, until in 2013, a remarkable guy called John Buckley took some footage of uh, following trees that had been felled. I think below, St. Mary took some footage of beavers feeding there and identified not a single beaver, but a mummy beaver, a daddy beaver, and some baby beavers. And it then became apparent when people started to look that there were more beavers than that on the river. And now that the project has moved on and and, and some sort of um, genetic assessment has been done, we know that a a population of beavers descended from, I think, originally two individuals were able to to, to breed and expand, create one or two colonies on the river at that time. And of course, for those of us working on beaver reintroduction, even though You know, we knew there were odd beavers that had escaped from private collections and zoos. Nobody, I think, knew at the beginning of 2013 that there were beavers breeding anywhere. And, well, actually, that's not true. We knew they were on the Stour in Canterbury, and they'd been there for some time, probably for 15 years at that time, but for for whatever reason, everybody just wanted to pretend it wasn't happening. And then, of course, this this footage was taken on the River Otter, which um, showed this family. And at that point in time, uh, it was released to the media and, and it became abundantly apparent within a day or two of this happening that as far as government was concerned, there only were two options. One was that you said, well, welcome back to Beaver. This is great news. or well, the other was that you said no and insisted you were going to shoot them all. And as Owen Patterson was the Secretary mm-hmm. of State for the Environment at that time, guess what option he went for? Oh um, the Angling Trust, those stalwarts of fisheries and riparian restoration, wrote to him demanding that all the beavers were killed. And, and he wrote back within a few days without having asked anybody else at all to agree that, that absolutely was imperative. The press response to it was so negative and the, the response from the community surrounding the river was so negative that within a week they'd they changed tack and said that, well, no, they weren't going to kill the beavers. What they were going to do was going to catch them all and put them in zoos. We had some meetings right at the beginning of this whole process with some very elegant civil servants who were, you know, character actors straight out of Yes Minister. And they were charming people. You know, we sat down to have a discussion about the future, and they made it clear in the nicest way possible that the future was going to be those animals were going to be put, caught and put into zoos. And we suggested different alternatives. And Natural England said at the back, sat at the back of the room and said, well, they'd like to find a middle way and they'd like to have a monitored trial. In fairness, they summoned up enough courage to suggest that. But they were told by their overlords that this was not going to be and that there was no option other than to put them in zoos. So I've worked in zoos for 16 years. Some of the guys who were directors of the zoos that they approached were my friends. You know, we sat in pubs in Scotland a quarter of a century ago, drinking black and tans and playing pool. So they asked these guys if they'd take the beavers. And we phoned them and said, look, you do realise that if you do this for these people... This brings this whole ambition to restore this animal to England. It just kills it stone dead. It brings it to an end instantly, and the flame goes out and the dream dies. And they said to a man, we are not going to do it. So they then had no plan B. And as they'd no plan B, they were adamant they were going to catch them. They were going into some central DEFRA holding facility somewhere. They were very unclear as to what was going to happen to them next. But, you know, I don't know, maybe it was going to be some sort of internment centre for aliens. But the long and the short of it was it was just an absurd process. And, And it got to the point where, you know, those of us involved, Devon Wildlife Trust, myself and some others. Well, there was no point in talking to these people anymore, because they were saying one thing and you were saying something that was the complete polar opposite. So the dialogue finished. And when the dialogue finished, then all sorts of things happened. The campaign group 38 Degrees set up a Save the Free Beavers of England type petition. All sorts of people um, supported it, you know, from the normal luminaries like Chris Packham and decent nature conservationists, but also a number of celebrities like Russell Brand said, this should not happen. Ricky Gervais and... And the number of signatures that were there on the petition started to grow. And it started, I don't know, with eight. By the time it finished, it was 70,000. And the election was coming up somewhere in the, the dimness of the nervous system that is DEFRA, must have recognised that this was not going to have a happy ending. And if this kept on going the way it was going, you were going to have to have a debate in the House of Parliament about what was to happen to the beavers. And they would argue all the normal stupidities, and, and it, would just, it would just be ridiculous. So the whole thing went on and on and on and on and on. There were community meetings where the community said, well, we don't want the beavers caught. And, and the government said, well, you know, we're going to discuss it. And then the BBC told us that on the day we were supposed to discuss it, they'd actually sent a van up to Scottish Natural Heritage to get the traps to catch them. So we weren't discussing it at all. They were going to catch them, and we were just going to be told to piss off. So the long and short of it was that in the end, as the, the whole thing became more and more entertaining, Owen Patterson was sacked by David Cameron, and they brought in Liz Truss, who basically said, right, that's, this is it. It's a matter for Natural England. It's science-based. We're not getting involved in this anymore. Make a decision based on science, and based on science, there is no decision other than to let those It was possible for them to let the beaver stay. The farmers were absolutely on side in the River Otter. The whole community was on side and the only organization that bleating in a desultory form still tried to maintain its pathetic course was the Angling Trust. They asked the farmers if they could come down and film themselves for WBC documentaries. You know, bitching on about how beaver dams would obstruct the course of water for migratory game fish, forgetting, of course, that migratory game fish and beavers have lived together for forty million years and developed a relationship that's deep and profound. And and yeah, she so they, they, in the end they granted a trial license. To Devon Wildlife Trust, and an excellent programme of study was undertaken by the Trust, which shows quite graphically that those animals are incredibly important for biodiversity, and they've delivered on everything we expected them to deliver on, and flood retention, water purification, and that, that that now is the time to reintroduce the beaver to Britain, and this is what we're debating now i
0: think it came out just after i got sent a copy of your book actually i think the news that this study was the news was all good from it basically as you just said so that was quite nice not one one uh, glimmer of hope in a <laughs> rather dull summer of uh, of bad news mainly i
1: was gonna say you know, because yeah. you've, you've obviously you've got the book coming out and i believe it comes out on the 10th of september yeah yeah just just a little bit can you give us like a quick summary i guess of of what the book's about and where people will be able to buy it from as well
2: You can get the book from um, Chelsea Green, you can get it from um, NHBS, you can get it from Amazon. It's going to be sold quite widely. It's been, (laughs) it's my first it's not my first book, I wrote uh, a management manual in 2016 with other authors and I've done other bits (laughs) involved but it's the first book when you actually sit down and say you know we're going to tell a story. It's got bits in it about beavers but not much. It's about people and about the people who have acted well and, and have been you know, real stalwarts and about the people who have acted badly. So some people are going to like it and, you know, some people are going to like it not so much. But it's nature, conservation and the raw. It's down to, you know, we know we're in a time of terrible crisis and it would seem to me and to some of the right-minded people that I know that we should be acting fast now, that we should be responding quickly to the danger of oblivion that faces us that we can't expect to reasonably live in a landscape where every other form of life has been extinguished by us to the point where all that's left are us our domestic animals and a range of species that are so adaptive that they will endure and I'm just appalled that that, you know in in a time like this that that, the people who could help who are able to, with the resource they have, say, yes, we are together with you, are just sitting on their hands. And not only are they sitting on their hands, they're exploring every cul-de-sac there is of pointlessness to delay projects that that are perfectly reasonable. And the beaver thing is, I guess, you know, it's fair to say now that as we see this, moving to a point where they're uneradicable so however badly wrong however we fumble this ball they're not going to be extinguished again but what i have to say is i've worked in the species now for a quarter of a century and i've seen so many failures and in the lifetime that precursed mine there were people who thought well about this and who tried to do what we have accomplished There's not a lot of satisfaction in being where we are now because, you know, as far as I'm concerned, we're perfectly capable of ballsing this up and snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. But it's not going to be possible to wipe this island clean of this animal that is so important. So it's a kind of bittersweet tale, I think. It's a tale where there is tremendous hope and it shows the best of people and the worst of people and it explains why... That the, it's been so hard to do something that, that's so essentially simple um, and that it's all about people and very little to do about beavers.
0: There's a brilliant story involving a briefcase and a photocopier, a DEFRA briefcase, <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is rather excellent. I but think we're not can...
1: going to put any spoilers in for that, so you no, have, no, to, no. Buy to, yeah. you have to buy the book to read about it. buy the
0: book to read that one. It's, yeah. it's quite a reasonably priced book as well, so uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's, I, I would highly recommend it if you're at all interested in beaver reintroduction. We haven't even touched on water voles it's another thing you heavily involved with developing how to breed them in captivity as well. So yeah, so we can probably do about four podcasts talking to you, I reckon, Derek, at least, for all, <laughs> all the stuff <laughs> you've been up to. Oh well, thank <laughs> you so much coming on, Derek. Yeah, no we
1: wish you all the very best with the book. I really do hope yeah. it's a big success. Thank you yeah. very and, much
2: indeed. That's really and, kind.
1: And, and good luck with everything as well. And it's. Oh. Uh,
2: like all you that. can do in a life is the best you can and that's it not everything's a triumph but all you can do is try
1: yeah that's i think that's a very good quote yeah. a very good quote to kind of work that's by. a good place to end definitely. definitely all right
2: thank you very much
0: cheers Derek. Well, quick before you go Derek, do you do tours or anything at your
2: yeah farm we're one? going to be doing sparry tours next year we're going to show you you know what the hell's worked and what the hell hasn't and we'll would be going around the farm, looking at the rewilding areas, looking at the captive breeding areas, looking at hay meadow restoration, looking at some of the contradictions that are all in this. So how do we try to maintain some sort of farmed landscape as well? That's what we're going to be talking about. And by then, I will also have another book about, which is going to look at the history of the wolf in the British Isles um, and the culture and folklore. The last of the song lines and stories as they fade from memory. So we'll be able to have a chat as well about you know some of the uh, the bigger issues with regard to to that animal too.
0: We'll have to have you back on. I think that'd be
1: fantastic. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cheers, Derek.
2: Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.
0: Well, I hope you all enjoyed that. That was fantastic to have Derek on the show. So thanks again to him for coming on. Lots of informative stuff there.
1: Yeah. It's a yeah. Extra big thanks. To Derek. so that's kind of it for this episode we have got some exciting guests lined up and we're going to be covering a wide variety of topics and we'll even be giving a particular species some much needed love that it doesn't tend to get and we're also going to be delving into the wonderful season that is autumn and everything that that brings with it so stay
0: tuned yeah some exciting stuff coming up we're, we're coming up with too many topics to cram in we need like we do 20 <laughs> episodes a month Oh God. <laughs> <for creating. laughs> Okay then, guys, we're going to finish it up there because it's been quite a long episode. Thanks for listening.
1: Um, And remember to, if you've got any questions, just you can contact us in all the usual spots.
0: And if you wouldn't mind, please do rate us on your podcast provider, whether that be uh, the Google one or Apple or whatever. Um, It all helps us. Thanks very much. Goodbye.
1: Bye.